Chapter Twelve of the U-Boat Hunters by James B. Connolly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Chapter Twelve: Flotilla Humor Ashore. The incident reported in the previous chapter was not young Chisholm's first interview with the British Admiral. Mac went on to tell how, when after his first cruise, Chis came to the naval base to report. He had heard that the old fellow in charge believed that the Lord made the earth for admirals, especially British admirals, but beyond that he knew nothing of his peculiarities. However, after his cruise, Chis went whistling up the hill to report. By and by he was admitted to the presence of the admiral, who was seated at a flat desk in the middle of the room, gazing straight ahead. The old chap looked pretty frosty. Chis waited a moment, then ventured a cheery, "'Good morning, sir!' The face at the desk did not even turn to look at him, but the thin lips almost opened, and a rasping voice said, "'Got anything to say to me?' Chiz was one of the sociable souls, and he would have liked to sit down and talk in an informal way of several little sea things that he thought were fairly interesting. But he had not been asked even to sit down, and the voice froze him. So, why, no, sir, nothing special to report, was all he could find to say. Hmm. Nothing to say? Then why waste my time or your own? Might as well get out, hadn't you? Chiz got out. An American lieutenant commander in this place must rate about seven numbers below a yellow dog, said Chiz to Mac when he came out. Chiz had four days in port. Mac is still telling the story, after that cruise, and two days after his visit to the hill there was a cricket match between a team from our flotilla and a team from theirs. The idea was for all hands to forget rank for a while, get into the game, and so cement the entente between the two nations. Chiz was picked for one of our team, and you all know what a husky he is, and what he used to do with a baseball bat. There aren't many who ever hit him any further or oftener than Chiz on the old Annapolis ball field. He was one of the first of our fellows to go to bat. He's standing there in the box, or whatever they call it, waiting for one to his liking, and looking around the field, wondering where he will place it, when he gets one to his liking. And as he looks, he spies his friend the Admiral, playing what we'd call left field. And just beyond the Admiral, the ground sloped away for a hundred yards or so. Chiz hefts his bat, and you know those cricket bats, what they look like, and how they feel after you've been used to meeting fast ones with a narrow baseball bat. They are wide and heavy and springy. Chiz doesn't pay any attention to three or four balls that come along, except to fend them away from the wicket with his wide cricket bat. He knew what he wanted, and by and by he got one, one about knee-high with a little in-curve to it. Chiz sets himself and swings, and way low it goes, over the old admiral's head and down the slope beyond. Chris makes all the runs the law allows, six, I think it is, and he's sitting resting on the wide part of his cricket bat before the admiral even shows the top of his head over the hill with the ball. When he does and heaves it about halfway to the pitcher, or bowler, or whatever they call him, he's out of breath. Chiz sets himself for another one knee-high with an in-shoot, and when he gets one he wails it again, and away trots the admiral on another hunt down the hill and Chiz makes six more runs before they even see the top of the Admiral's head over the brow of the hill. 
the third time and the fourth time chis sets for a knee-high one with an inshoot to it and the third time and the fourth time he belts it over the old fellow's head and down the long slope but on the fourth time the old fellow doesn't throw the ball in he walks in with it and he calls in the high official umpires or whoever they are in charge and they have a conference and the next thing they call the game off by this time doubtless so the word was passed the american officers have caught the idea of the game and next time there would be a real game and so on but there was no next game however next day chis puts out to sea and when he's into port again he calls up on the hill as per instructions and by and by he is passed again into the presence who is sitting just as before at the flat desk in the middle of the room and gazing straight before him this time chis doesn't speak not even to say good morning sir and the graven image at the desk doesn't speak either and there's a silence for maybe a minute and then the old fellow barks out what are you standing there for you wish to see me and chris barks out in his turn no sir i don't wish to see you you do not wish to see me then what are you doing here and chis cracks out i'm here because your orders comped me to be here sir zowie that straightened the old boy up he took a look at chis and he says after a while and almost pleasantly have a chair and cheers has a chair and they have a talk and after that chis finds him a lot easier to get along with chis says now that the old fellow isn't such a terrible chap not after you get onto his curves when we first came over mac is still speaking most of the topsiders over here were strong for the entente stuff and a good thing too why not our fellows were mostly strong for it too two or three so strong that it was hard to tell whether they were americans or something else even their accents and as i say most of the officers of our own over here were for it most of them but you can't rid everybody overnight of long inherited notions there was one chap we used to meet and he sure was the most patronizing thing now we know we haven't the biggest navy in the world but as far as it goes we think it is pretty good as good as anybody's man for man and ship for ship but let that pass this chap who never could see anything in our navy came in here one day he wasn't bad he was just one of those naturally foolish ones who thought he was a little brighter than his company the topsiders would be working night and day to create good feeling and he was the kind would come along and break up the show not exactly meaning to this was in the hotel bar here where a bunch of us were easing off after a hard cruise when he comes along he doesn't like the names of our destroyers in his navy there was significance in the names they gave to a class of ships take viper adder moccasin and so on they suggest things you know dangerous to meddle with and all that sort of thing you know but your people name your ships after men evidently david jones cunningham mcdonough i say who are they presidents or senators or that sort or what lanahan was there the hell with her ram her anyway lanahan and they all just naturally turned him over to lanahan who had west of ireland forebears and never did believe in letting any englishman put anything across nothing like that anyway you never read much i take it of our history says lanahan your history my dear chap i had hard work keeping up with my own no doubt but you've heard of the american revolution 
I dare say I have. Oh, yes, I have. Well, you spoke of Jones. If you mean John Paul, then there was a naval fight one time in the North Sea. The Serapis and the Bonhomme Richard. I say, old chap, I didn't mention John Paul Jones. David Jones is the name of your destroyer out in the harbor now. David Jones? Let me see. Why, sure. David Jones was a New England parson who boarded around among the God-fearing neighbors for his keep on weekdays, and preached the wrath of God and hellfire for his cash wage, five pound a year, on Sundays. He was a devout man. If thy finger offended, cut it off. But a sort of muscular Christian, too. If thy enemy cross thee, go out and wail the livers and lights out of him. Same as we're trying to do to the U-boats now. Well, David lived in the shadow of the church till he was thirty-seven years of age. Then the revolution broke, and David, in whose veins flowed the blood of old covenanters, took a running long jump into it. He started in as deckhand, or perhaps it was cook's helper, but there was salt in his veins too, and rapidly he learned his trade, and soon rose in his new profession until he was master of his own ship and, as master, raising the devil among the coasters, which used to cruise out of maritime province ports in those days. The captures he made of vessels loaded with hay and potatoes, and so on, materially reduced the high cost of living for New England folks in those days. Cunningham? He was a young American lad who did not come of any particularly good old stock, meaning that he did not come from Massachusetts or Virginia, probably he went to sea as a midshipman on an american sloop of war and he turned out to be some little middy ensign lieutenant commander man he just ran up the ladder of naval rank and got a ship of his own a fine young able sloop of war and with this sloop of war he would run out from the french channel ports and harry the english coast and english shipping never heard of him no well well and he so famous in his day that king george put up a reward of one thousand pounds for his capture dead or alive but they never captured him and barry he was the wexford boy who captured two hundred english prizes more or less in the west indies paul jones trained under barry before he had a ship of his own and mcdonough he but am i boring you no no it is very interesting i am glad well, McDonough was the Commodore who fought the Battle of Lake Champlain against your people. He opened that battle with prayers for the living, and closed it with prayers for the dead. You want to watch out for those fellows who pray when they go to war. Their technique is sometimes pretty good. Their spirit is always good. While Mac was looking over the booty after that fight, a funny thing happened. He—I say, old chap, it's all very interesting, exceedingly interesting— but what do you say to another little nip before I go? I've got to run along to see the chief now. What will you have to drink? Sure, a nip of Irish, if you please. And here, Lanahan held up his glass, here's to the memory of dead heroes. May they always be preferred to crawling reptiles when it comes to naming our fighting ships. After the other fellow had gone, Lanahan turned to us. Say, fellows, I know I got Paul Jones and Barry and McDonough right, but how near was I on Davy Jones and Cunningham? Something tells me I got their histories mixed. This admiral, of whom our fellows used to spin the yarns, was a unique character. 
He lacked imagination, and he had the manner of a rat-terrier toward people not of his own kind, but he was one good executive. Devotion to duty, conscience, those were his beacon-lights. He had been known, when the minister of the local church wasn't up to standard, to walk into the pulpit and deliver the sermon himself. Before he came to take command of this coast district, the U-boats had been raising cane there. There was a fleet of steam trawlers handled by their old fishing captains and crews, whose special duty it was to sweep up the waters just outside the harbor for mines. It was at that time a dangerous business, but it was also monotonous. It was a duty most easy to evade. Who was to say that they had not swept up? No cove at a naval base five hundred miles away, that was sure. Even if mines were found there after they reported it swept clear, what would that prove? The Huns were laying mines all the time, weren't they? So, war days are hard enough anyway. Why not ease up now and again? They eased up. Many a snug little place there was along the coast where a crew could go ashore and have a pleasant time for a day or two. There were reports to fill out. But what were reports? Ship a clerk in the crew, and who would know? Surely not some aide at the naval base who spent his busiest hours taking the admiral's niece to tea fights. The British public will probably stand more from their lawfully ordained rulers than any other public on earth. They stood for a good many ships being mined on that coast before they began to ask the why of it. The powers returned with facts and figures, percentage tables, and so on, of ships departing and ships arriving, proving clearly that the number of ships lost was no more than was to be expected. Whereupon the British public took to writing letters to the press. British politicians take letters to the press seriously. A new man, the admiral we have been talking of, was sent to take charge of the district. He got down to business. He fitted out a thirty-knot dispatch boat, and away he went. All along that coast he pounced in on little harbors where minesweepers should be found working outside, but where he found them working mostly inside at little sociable gatherings where there was a dance or the like going on in front and a little something nourishing to drink in back. Our stern and efficient admiral lit into them like a gull into a school of herring. Out by their gills he hauled them, and pretty soon the BP began to read less of percentages and more of results. One of the first results was that some trawler skippers lost their jobs, and new skippers took their places. This was at the time that rewards of five pounds or so were offered the skippers bringing a mine into port. That five pounds looked pretty good to one of the new skippers, and when one night at a pub a discharged skipper confided to him where there was a nest of German mines, out he goes into the grey dawn to be there first. He's there first, and sure enough, it's a grand little spot for mines. He hooks into one, lashes it under his quarter, and goes scooting back to harbor, which happens to be the naval base. Proudly and noisily he steamed along, shouting to everybody he met of his good luck, and asking the course to the admiral's ship. Everybody he met gave him the course, and also the full width of the channel as he passed. He ran alongside the flagship, hailing loudly for the admiral as he steamed up. The admiral was not on board, but his aide was, and the aide came on to have a look over the side. He saw the mine bouncing up and down between the minesweeper's quarter and his own ship's side. Shove off! Get away from us! yelled the aide. Suppose you press one of those little feelers and blow us all to pieces. Get away, I tell you! The minesweeper skipper looked up. Feelers, sir? 
and then looked down at the mine. Feelers, sir. Oh, you mean them little orns sticking out on her? Blind me, sir. I thought I'd knock em all off before I lashed her alongside. But have no fear, sir. There's only two of em left, and I'll bloomin well soon. He reaches for an oar and went bouncing aft. Bloomin well soon knock them off too, sir. End of chapter 12 Recording by William Tomko